Hello and welcome back to Elm Town. It's Kevin Yank here, your regular host, and we'd like to thank our sponsors. Once again, this week we have Culture Amp, my employer, sponsoring my time on this show. You can visit them at cultureamp.com/jobs to find out how you can join our product team in Melbourne, Australia, building a platform that some of the best companies in the world use to understand what their employees are thinking and feeling about their work and helping to make the workplaces of the world better places to work. We are also sponsored again by Ellie this week. They are paying our hosting and bandwidth bills for the show. Friend of the show, Luke Westby, put a lot of time and effort into Ellie, an in-browser dev environment for building simple examples with Elm. If anytime you want to throw a few lines of Elm together to see what they do, to answer a question for yourself about how it works, or to answer someone's, someone else's question by providing them an executable example that they can then take and edit from there, you should head to ellie-app.com. That's E-L-L-I-E-A-P-P.com. Uh, it's a, a, a really useful tool for the Elm community, and we owe Luke and uh, anyone who contributed to Ellie along the way mad props for their contribution. Today, I am very happy to welcome to the show Robin Hegland Hansen. Robin, did I pronounce that all right? Yeah, that seemed fine. And thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure You're to welcome. be here. You're welcome. Robin joins us from sunny Norway today. I don't know if it's sunny. It's sunny here in Melbourne. It might be sunny, but it won't last. <laughs> Robin might be a familiar name to those who listened to our previous episode. Luke Westby picked uh, Elm 19 Brings Better Collections, your blog post, about some data structure changes that you contributed to the release of Elm 19. Have I got that right, Robin? Yeah, that sounds right. So I, I went back, reread that to refresh my memory in preparation for today's show. And you contributed a few sort of changes to the some of the most important data structures in Elm. The, the list, you made it significantly faster. You, you made dictionary and by extension set way faster. And you did a rewrite of array that sort of closed off a lot of the bugs that existed in that data structure because it was written in JavaScript by rewriting it in Elm. So I, I would kind of like to understand how you got to the point of making such an important contribution like that to the Elm language. We'll, we'll get into the details of those things, but maybe take me back to the start of that journey. How did you find yourself on the road that eventually led to you contributing to the internals of the Elm language? Sure. We'll have to go back, I think, three years now, three and a half years, about almost. Uh, I was, uh, I had recently quit software development <laughs> and uh, for good, I thought at the time. Done, uh, you're out. Yeah, I'm out. I'm never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> and I suddenly faced myself with having a lot of free time on my hands. Elm was, I wonder if, or maybe I had seen uh, an article about Elm on Hack News uh, with regards to the release of Cirrus 16. Uh, and Elm was a surprising language to me because uh, it was the first statically typed language that I actually enjoyed using. I've always been like a dynamic languages sort of guy. And as luck would have it, I was also fairly interested in data structures at that time. I was a fairly heavy user of Clojure, 
And Rich Hickey, the creator of Clojure, had created this data structure known as a hash array map try, or HAMPT for short. Hash array map try? Have I got that? Yeah. At around the same time that I started uh, messing around with Elm, uh, there came this paper called, I think it was called Implementing Champs, uh, which stood for Compressed Hash Array Mapped. But anyway, it was a, it was a paper on improving the implementation of a HAMPT. Uh, and I found it very interesting. And suddenly the idea came to me that if I really want to understand this data structure, I should try to implement it for myself. Uh, and since I was learning Elm at the time, I thought, well, let's do it in Elm. That way I can learn Elm at the same time. Okay, so fan of data structures, you're reading about new programming languages on Hacker News. This does not sound like someone to me who had quit software development for good. Can you fill <laughs> me in on what led you to quit software development? It sounds like just when you thought you, you were out, Hacker News pulled you back in. Yeah, it's not that far from the truth. I. Uh... <laughs> So this is a story really about imposter syndrome. Everyone's story, I guess, is a bit different. For me, I think part of the reason why that led me to imposter syndrome has to do with me not being, uh, I don't have a higher education in computer science or anything like that. Uh, and okay. at least here in Norway, I feel it's, uh, or you know, my experience is that it's fairly normal that if you're working with software development, you also have a higher degree in uh, either computer science or computer engineering. There's this implied assumption in the in the culture of the industry. It's fairly common that the people who are new to the profession have just come out of school, right? Uh, studying the field. Uh, so while it's not uncommon for people to be entirely self-taught, it's it's much more uncommon than having studied it at school. I've seen in the industry occasions where like companies run programs to, to bring junior developers into their engineering departments. And those programs are often called grad programs. And I guess I'd never really thought there is an assumption there that you have just graduated from a, a degree of some kind. I've also heard them called junior engineering programs, which maybe doesn't have that assumption baked in. It's a subtle difference, I suppose. Maybe. All the places I've worked, I've been, well, maybe not the place I work today, but all the places I've worked before, I think I was the only one who didn't have a degree. When people hire you because they think you know your stuff, you don't get the treatment that a student would get, right? Because a student has an understanding, but they don't necessarily have any practical experience. Mm. At least it felt for me at the time that it was much more okay to ask questions if, if you came from school than if you had gotten in because... Uh, you prove that you knew the technology in an interview. Right. So to me, it would take a lot for me to ask questions, right? How would you do this? I don't, I'm not entirely sure I understand what this does. Those sort of questions was very tough for me to ask. Yeah. I've read this thing and it makes no sense to me. Yeah. It makes no sense to me now either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But at the time, I avoided asking questions that might make it seem that I didn't know uh, as much as maybe I should have known. Right. And so you mentioned that this led you 
down a road towards situation of burnout. And was that just you doing way more work than necessary to figure things out yourself rather than ask for help? I think the, the main problem there, uh, since I didn't ask questions, I did have to figure everything out on my own, which of course meant that I spent a lot of time doing things that I like, I was part of a team, but I mostly worked on projects alone, uh, which means that I'm the guy who has to give estimates. And, you know, <laughs> Today, I know that nobody makes their estimates, uh, or yes. almost never, right? At the time, I didn't. And so when I gave an estimate and I couldn't meet it, partly because I never asked questions to get stuff done quickly, <laughs> uh, you know, I took that as a huge defeat. And I took that as, a, as, a, as an education that I uh, might not know as much about software development myself thought I did. Right. And eventually you come to this, I've fooled people to think that I know what I'm doing, but I, <laughs> I don't feel like I know what I'm doing at all. So what sort of work specifically were you doing at this time? Was it web development or was it some other kind of software engineering? So I started in embedded development actually. Right. Uh, and I did that for about a year year and a half, I think. My coworkers were great, uh, but the technology was C++ and I found no pleasure in it. <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone does. I quit because of the technology stack. The working environment was great, but I didn't like the technology. So I moved on to another company that did web development. It was a small consultancy and they had small clients, which meant that they didn't necessarily have projects that you could work on for an entire month at a time. So I had to switch between different projects. And was, was the tech different on every project? The back end was mostly Ruby on Rails, but yeah, the database oh, yeah. could be different. The front end framework could be different. Yeah. In addition to not asking the questions I probably should have asked, it became even worse in an environment where the tech just changed around uh, often. This is why I asked why you were doing web development, because I have, I have done web development my whole career, and I feel like web development was just barely possible to teach it to yourself when I started it 20 years ago. <laughs> and <laughs> nowadays, I have no idea how people get started in web development, because there, there are layers upon layers of archaeological sediment of languages and standards and understanding what is new, what is too new to use, what is, what is obsolete let alone just teaching yourself to be productive in that environment. It seems insurmountable to me. So I'm curious, when you made that move from embedded systems into a web development context, did you feel like that sense of being in over your head that I have certainly felt over the years, having all the advantages that I had of getting in early, did you feel that got worse or, or, or was it the same? I think I regret to this day switching from <laughs> embedded development to web development. <laughs> right. But C++ wasn't so bad, all things considered? No, it wasn't. I mean, I mean C++ is, is and was a mess. Uh, I, that's my personal opinion. But at least it was the same language every week, and it was the same libraries every week. You had incentive to really invest in learning those things. Whereas in web development, not as much when you do Elm development, but JavaScript world particularly, your, your knowledge is deprecated by the end of the week. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels like. And in certain projects, it feels like we're mostly, you know, this project is mostly kept together by hopes and duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the back end was Ruby on Rails as well. And I, that's that's the same sort of back end stack that I work in these days. And having gotten into that community, that ecosystem a bit late, I'm the first to admit that the Ruby community, its strength is its weakness. And the, the weakness is that 
there are a hundred different ways of doing things and they all have clever names that are not self-describing. <laughs> and so as a newbie joining, it's like, hey, you should use devise for that. Great. What is devise? Is that a person or a library or a language? I have no way of knowing and <laughs> I have no way of understanding how it compares to the three other things that do that same thing and why they have different names. But that is also its strength because the people who feel like they understand those things feel like they have a, a kind of a secret language that binds them together. It is interesting to compare that community with, with Elm, for example, where there are these like implied rules of no clever names, no secret codes, use the most simple language to describe everything. Yeah, it's very different. It's very different. And uh, there was a post on the discourse a week or two ago where someone asked, what do you call a programmer who programs in Elm? That question shows up every once in a while, and, and the answer tends to be we're programmers. Elm is not the only tool in our tool set, and you should keep things easy for people who come here. So it's interesting to me that you today are focused on data structures, because I feel like when I talk to engineers who came into the industry without a formal education, without formal training, when I ask them, hey, what are the things that you feel like you never learned properly? Data structures is usually in the top three. Mm -hmm. So is that what drew you to data structures is an attempt to fill one of those gaps for yourself? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. A key factor in why I ended up doing a lot of data structure work is just because I had a lot of time. An immutable data structure is, is an interesting problem on its own. You're essentially copying the entire thing, but you're doing it fast. That is a very interesting problem to me. And it's also a very small and self-contained problem. So it's easy to like just sit down and, okay, I have a puzzle. I'm going to solve this puzzle. And maybe it takes a month, but it, it has a very clear end date. I've always been fascinated by other languages. And so when another language shows up on Hacker News, I'm naturally drawn to it. And so JavaScript was like an eye opener to me. Like you could pass around functions and, and there's the map thing that takes a function. Like I was very intrigued by that. And JavaScript was probably like my, <laughs> I guess you could the say. The gateway? My, yeah. I was going to say first love, but gateway works right. too. Eventually, it led me to this very interesting language called Scheme. Right. Uh, because I learned a bit about how um, JavaScript got started. And it was apparently, it was supposed to be this Scheme-inspired language. And then two weeks before release, they were like, it has to look like Java. And now, oh no, we have to change everything. <laughs> uh, so I looked at Scheme and... I thought Scheme was cool. There were a lot of cool ideas, but I didn't really look at it as a practical language. And then a colleague of mine told me, you should look into Clojure. And I did. <laughs> I still like Clojure to this day. Like when I create hobby projects and stuff, Clojure is usually the backend language of choice. And Clojure did, I believe Rich Hickey did invent the hash IRMAP try, or at least the persistent version of that. That data structure is really, like Clojure really is just, hash RMAP tries upon hash RMAP tries. Okay, so now now I'm feeling like an imposter here. <laughs> You'll have to explain to me because if it is central to the story, me and our listeners will probably have to understand what are hash array map tries and what do they do in closure? They're essentially hash maps or they're used yeah. for that purpose, right? Okay. They're immutable versions of hash maps, right? You right. Take a key and you associate it to a value. 
Yes. So the closest thing I would say that Elm has to a hash map right now is a dictionary. This is correct. Yeah. Okay. The difference being that in Elm, uh, it will take too long. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> we can skip that. <laughs> sure. At least the, the language creator, Rich Hickey, said that he spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do I make immutable hash maps fast? And he did find a way and it was decently fast. And so I became interested because immutable data structures, you are essentially copying it before modifying it. Yes. How do you make that fast? Right. Like my impression from the outside, from someone who has never done this work, most of these data structures have uh, obvious naive implementation that is impractically slow. And then there is probably a clever insight academic somewhere along the way had to make this fast, which is why we use this data structure today. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the paper I read was that it didn't actually explain how the data structure it was improving was implemented, but it gave you some idea. So I thought, well, I have a lot of time and I have nothing practical to use it for. The paper I read didn't explain how the data structure was implemented, but it did give like some clues. So I, I thought to myself like, okay, let's play a computer detective. Based on these clues, can I create a hash error map try? Right. So it was kind of like fun trying to discover things as well. You were like reverse engineering it. From a description of how to do something more efficiently, you were trying to reverse engineer that to an implementation of the thing itself. Exactly. That's how it began. It took me three months and it was a lot of fun. And I released the package as collections ng on uh, Elm packages. So you were using Elm as your trial language to build this. Exactly. And, and that provided a project for me to learn Elm as well. So it was like a win-win. As someone who, who does a lot of work in JavaScript and Ruby, I would say that both of those languages, I use something like a hash in them fairly frequently. In JavaScript, it's just objects. In Ruby, it's hashes yeah. or hash maps. When I am building things in Elm, often my first instinct is, oh, I would use a hash map for that, but a record is too limited and a dictionary is, you know, maybe the key I want is not a comparable or I've just gone down the road of using a dictionary before and it hasn't worked out great. And so I try to think of another way to do it. But yeah. having like a first class hash map seems appealing to me, perhaps naively, but I could understand why that would seem like a cool project to invest some time in. Of course, the problem at the time was that, and probably still is, is that you can't create an Elm package which calls JavaScript directly right, or indirectly. You can't have ports. And I needed access to native JavaScript arrays because that's a key part of the implementation to make it fast. But I didn't have access to that. So what I did instead was that I created records with like field names called uh, i1, i2, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and to change or read from it, I created this function which converted an integer to the field name to be used. Uh -huh. It works. It's not fast. So I got it finished. I created a hash map. I created a hash set. And I also created uh, an array implementation, which essentially just instead of a hash, you just use an index instead. The data structure was essentially the same. I show it to the community and Noah Solway, right? Yeah. He, he came up and like, oh, this is cool. And he gave me some ideas and tips. And I got to explain how everything worked. I figured out when I explained it that I should probably write this down. And I did. And I published it. And that got Richard Feldman interested. And then I wrote some benchmark, which got Brian Hicks interested. And so suddenly I was talking to, for someone who had just quit software development due to imposter <laughs> syndrome, 
yeah. suddenly having the interest of what you conceive to be like the big players in the Elm community <laughs> yes yeah. was, was kind of big these people built their own language and if, if they're seeing or if they're even curious about what you're doing <laughs> I guess that tells you something yeah yeah eventually this got around to Evan because at the time, equality checking on dictionaries and sets didn't work, but it did with my data structures. And uh, the array implementation was buggy as well. This is comparing two dictionaries to each other to, to see if they're actually the same. Yeah, if they, they have the same the contents. Same, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this got around to Evan, and I got to speak with him, which, you know, again, to someone with imposter syndrome and burnout was huge, right? Right. Uh, and it, it was decided that dictionary, like equalities for dictionaries and sets could be implemented without changing the entire implementation. So we agreed to just focus on the array implementation because the array implementation in Elm didn't work, right? There was a bug in the array implementation which could actually mutate some of the objects. This is now some of the work that went into Elm 19, right? Yeah, eventually. So yeah, I, I got to talk with Evan. We had this video conference where essentially I just walked through my code, what I done, what experiments I had done to make it fast, what had worked, what didn't, stuff like that. I guess up front, I was expecting it to be like, oh, you haven't done this? Well, that's dumb. You should have done this. <laughs> right. You were bracing yourself to have Evan, the language creator, pick all of the holes in the thing that you had built. But instead, it was more like a back and forth. Like he asked questions like, how does this work? And I was like, oh, it works like this. And he was like, oh, right. Well, did you try this? Yeah, I did. And it did work out great. Oh, well, it was just an idea. I think the key moment for me was that sometime in that video conference, he went like, ah, oh, that's that's really clever or, or something along those lines. I don't know. It felt really good to have that sort of reaction from someone I view as like, uh, like a minor celebrity in the, in the computer science world. It was probably one of the things that led me back to work in software development again, realizing that even if you are an expert, there are just things you don't know, which someone else does. Something that I think is worth emphasizing about your story to this point is that this happened as a result of you sharing an experiment and talking to people about it. I've seen people, you know, they open issues or pull requests on various open source repos that build various parts of the Elm language and core libraries, and they, they express frustration that these things don't get looked at or they don't get responses to them or they are no-brainer bug fixes and they don't get merged. And the core team of Elm right now, their preferred way to engage with new ideas that would go into Elm is to have a conversation about them first. If you've got an idea, show it off and let's talk about it. It's not the common open source model, but it's the one that whenever the question is asked, they suggest this is the right way to do it. This is the example of it working. Yeah. I think also a reason why people get frustrated, I guess, is because Elm is very, very different from entirely all other open source projects in this regard. There has been some frustration for me in this work with data structures as well, because it does seem like if things get merged into core, it's because Evan is satisfied that he couldn't do a better job himself. Mm. And so I have done things that I thought, well, like, we could have done this later. <laughs> we didn't need to do all this work up front. Of course, now that I have some distance to it, I am very glad that we did all the work we did before merging it in, because it seems to work very, very well at this point. So after that video conference, uh, the result of that was like a huge list of ideas. Evan is probably, probably one of the very few people I've met who have researched so much about so many things. 
so after that meeting, I had like a list of, oh, look, look at how Haskell did this. And oh, look, read this section of Ogosaki's book on functional data structures. It was like, it was like a huge list of things. And so even though I felt like I was done for the most part, right, I needed access to native JavaScript arrays to make it fast. But I felt like the Elm part of the code was pretty much done. But after that video meeting, there would be another three to six months of work perfecting the data structure. And somewhere along those lines, it became apparent to me that this will probably get merged in. And mostly when people filed issues, they would say that, oh, there's this guy called Robin who is working on a new implementation. So just wait. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it became more and more clear to me that I'm- So yeah, you see that message and you go, wow, I guess I'm working on a new implementation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You said something that interests me, which was that uh, you were doing some work to make it fast. Um, tell me about how performance came into the conversation. Was part of the experiment to prove that it could be done performantly, or was it you did the experiment to prove it could be done and then making it performant was, was phase two? How were you measuring performance through this process as well? I'm curious. The important thing to me up front was just to make it work. That was in and out of itself a huge challenge to me. Yes. And then once you had it done, it became natural to compare it to what was in Elm, uh, which was a pure JavaScript implementation. It was buggy, but it was there and people did use it. This is for Array again, specifically? Yeah, Array, Arrays. Yeah. yeah. The problem at the time was that Elm didn't have a benchmark library, like at all. Uh, I wrote this very quickly put together benchmarking framework, which called a JavaScript benchmarking framework directly. It was crude, but it did work. And that way I got to compare the performance of my data structure with what was already in Elm. And what did you find at first? My implementation was horribly slow. <laughs> 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 to get like a sense of how much I was missing out for a simple read, like I want to retrieve the fifth index of this array. I could do that one operation about a hundred thousand times a second. Mm -hmm. The current implementation in Elm can do that 11 million times per second. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. But we did get there. I think the performance is about the same today. Now, this may be a delicate question, but having heard your story previously about wrestling with imposter syndrome and burning out, was there any feeling that you were back in that place of overcommitment and feeling a bit lost? Or was this a more inspiring experience? Uh, it was way more inspiring experience. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Evan never really said you should have this done by so-and-so. It was more like, I think you should do this. If it's ready for Sarah 19, then it will be great. If not, well, you know, there's always Sarah 20, Sarah 21. There was never any like feeling of time pressure at all. Uh, having a video conference where it felt like I've actually taught him something was so inspiring that I was like, oh, I want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, I want to feel that again. Yeah. So the work that your blog post breaks down that went into Elm 19, it lists three things. There was some work done on list to make it faster, specifically by re-implementing fold R, uh, which so many things depend on. And when I went and looked at that pull request that you reference in the blog post, what jumped out to me is it replaced a fairly small JavaScript implementation for that function with a fairly verbose, deeply nested case expression written in pure Elm. And uh, I guess I was surprised that uh, something that looks bigger and more complicated on paper would be faster. 
was finding that optimization part of that original work or was that further down the line? It was definitely part of the original work. One of the things you do when you look at how to make this faster, you spend a lot of time just looking at the code that Elm outputs mm -hmm. and you get a sense of what would be faster and what wouldn't. And so like list fold R is one of the things that after having merged arrays, that was, I got to admit, that was some drug <laughs> <laughs> that did feel good. So I thought, well, I've done this one thing and now I kind of feel a bit ownership to some of Elm's core library. So what else could I do? These techniques you had discovered, you were finding other places they could be applicable or were these different techniques? Yeah, no, that, like the same things I've learned to make array fast, uh, I thought could be used someplace else. I think that's probably the most interesting thing about the array work is really how much other things that got affected by it. I say I wrote some benchmarks in, the, in a crude benchmarking library. And one of the things that happened was that Brian Hicks looked at this and was like, Elm should have a benchmark library. And he used the benchmark I'd written to kind of like as a test case for his work. And also I found a bunch of different optimization techniques that I could apply in this place in Elm's core, uh, in this place. So there were a bunch of like cool side effects from that work. <laughs> yeah. Reading your blog post, to me, the headline is performance, performance. And then at the bottom, array is a little faster in some cases, a little slower in other cases, but it's no longer buggy. <laughs> To hear the behind the scenes story, the the journey you went on was very much about, okay, I've got a solid array, but it doesn't perform. So I need to learn a lot about performance. Great. I have managed to make array about comparable to the way it was before, but now I've learned a lot about performance and look, there are some things that could be way faster. Yeah. Getting something to work is cool enough, but there is something about optimizing for performance, which is just a ton of fun, right? Because you write this thing and you wait in anticipation for the benchmarking <laughs> tool to be done. And then it shows you numbers and you're like, oh, wow, I wonder if I change this one thing. And then you run benchmarks for 15 minutes and yeah. then you're like, yes, it's, <laughs> it's 10 operations per second faster. I'm a genius. <laughs> it's, uh, it becomes sort of a competition with yourself or with your previous efforts. It becomes a really fun puzzle to solve. So if your work is going to lead to a more performant array than we have now, what is the difference between the current implementation and the one that you have in mind? The current implementation is based off the hash hour map try, which I've talked about before. Yep. And the new implementation is called a relaxed Radix B tree. And they sound very different, but <laughs> a relaxed Radix B tree or an RRBT for short is just an extension of the Aramap tribe. Okay. So it has a couple of extra properties, but it's, it's mostly the same thing. So again, just applying that prior art to Elm's implementation of things to get those benefits that have already been proven out in other contexts. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like there's a pretty high degree of confidence there. Whereas like previously you were saying, Hey, if we replace this thing with a completely different implementation, okay, it's solid now, but it's way slow. And I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to get to something that performs as well as the uh, unreliable JavaScript version, but you got there. This one, it sounds like there are proven performance benefits from where you are now to where you're going. And I suppose having that confidence must be quite nice. So where to from here? You've got those optimizations and the new array implementation into Elm 19. That's heck of an achievement. And I assume you, you've got more planned. I do. 
<laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm currently working on a hash map for Elm, uh, which is based on hash IR map tries from Clojure. Right. So way back, like your original experiment was, how can I make hash maps in Elm? So you've kind of taken a really productive detour, but you're coming <laughs> back to that original problem. Yeah, I am. And one of the reasons for that is because hash maps will allow new things. It will enable for folks yeah, to do more. The current problem with dictionaries in Elm, and you touched on this a little earlier, is that there are only certain things you can have in a hash map as a key, right? Yes. It has to, to be, be comparable. Yeah. There's a package I've used, which is like dictionary for anything, where I think in the past it has relied on the two string function. So it'll take something that's not comparable and two string it and use that as the comparable value. I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure that would be broken in Elm 19 now. I do. I think, but I think there's a package called AnyDict, which allows you to pass in your own comparison function. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So it'll take your, your value of whatever type you want. You provide a mapping to a, a, a comparison function, but you have something else in mind? I do. What we do in, in a hash map, essentially like the, the 10,000 foot view of how it works, is that it takes some key in, any key at all, and then it runs it through this native JavaScript function that essentially just encodes it into a simple number. And then we use that number as an index in an array, essentially. Right. So in a way, you're teaching Elm to make any value comparable? Well, not necessarily comparable because there isn't a there isn't a concept of greater than or less than in that mapping, but maybe equalable. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say. Is that, that the idea that you can tell if two values are equal or not? Not really. It's just that I need a key and I need to know where can I place this key so I can find it again. Okay. And so we teach the Elm compiler to convert any sort of object or any sort of thing into an a number representation, essentially. I hesitate to, to quote my computer science degree, <laughs> but when I learned hash maps back then, it was all about hashing functions. Like the defining characteristic of a hash map is it has a function that converts any value that you want to use as a key into a smaller namespace that provides the addresses for things inside your hash map. So that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yep. So I'm about to get that done. It's very close to being done. And I think it will have a lot of value for people to be able to store any sort of key in a hash map. And it will be yeah. fun to see that. Being so used. in your mind, is, is a hash map like a potential new primitive like sits alongside list and array? Is it a replacement for dictionary or does this dictionary still have its place in a world where there is a working hash map implementation? I still think uh, dictionaries have a place because one key thing about dictionaries in Elm at the moment is that they require comparable keys. And one of the reasons they do that is to be able to store the keys alphabetically or numerically. If you want a sorted collection, which you can also get things out by uh, some key, then they have a lot of value. Right, so dictionaries are ordered. Exactly. Whereas a hash map is not. Exactly. Well, that's a really useful distinction to have because I know the thing about JavaScript objects is that people would like them not to be ordered. It would be way more efficient, but implementations have made them ordered and now there are programs and websites, web apps that depend on their ordered 
characteristics. And so the standards process has had to retroactively define JavaScript objects as having ordered keys as a result of that. It's nice to be uh, drawing that line and going, okay, no, this thing is not ordered and you get all that efficiency. But that's actually a thing that has taken a lot of time in my work because Evan doesn't like the fact that the order can be anything. So part of the work has actually been to introduce some order. And what we're going for is insertion order. This is one of the things, like at the time, I didn't understand why this should be a requirement. <laughs> but now that I have some months since that decision, I see the value of it. And I think uh, it will be good to have some sort of order implied in the hash map data structure. And is it just like an API usability feature that people are going to naturally assume there's an order there? And so that's probably the, the least surprising thing to do? Yeah, because if you look at other languages, it's not just JavaScript, right? Uh, Java has had this problem. Closure has had this problem. It's like at some point in time, you either change your hash function or you change the order by doing something. Like in, in Java, they did an internal data structure change, which changed the order of the elements. And a lot of production systems just broke down. Yeah. Same, same thing happened in Clojure. They changed the hash function and then a lot of production systems broke. So whether you tell people they can depend on the order or not, they're going to depend on the order. So better to have a well-chosen one from the beginning. Exactly. Neat. So that's the hash map work, and I can't wait for that to come out. Hopefully, it will be able to test soon. Uh, no promises. <laughs> I'm not about to ask you when it'll be done, Robert. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> there are a bunch of things that I've done that just doesn't make it out at all, even if it seems promising. So I just want to add that caveat. But at least I'll be done with it soon. And after that, I'm thinking it would be cool to look more at the array code because I think there are performance optimizations that I can do there to make it even more general purpose. So, so now that we have a solid array that per performs well enough, you think there is room for a specific performance optimization iteration on it? Yeah, a thing we do uh, fairly often, maybe not with arrays, but at least with, at least with lists, is to append or concat two things together. And I believe I can make that constant time or effectively constant time with arrays. Wow. If I do get that in, my like high level goal, my reach for the stars goal is to see if Elm wouldn't be better off if we used arrays as the default list implementation. So like yeah. replacing arrays with lists or no, the other way around. So still having that classic functional language API or, or way of dealing with them, but maybe the optimal implementation is an array you're wondering. Yeah, especially in Elm because most, like a lot of our functions return lists, right? List yes. of HTML elements. And I believe arrays would be faster for that purpose. But of course, there's a lot of testing, benchmarking to be done to prove me wrong or right. Yeah. And I think that would be a really fun experiment to try out. Speaking for myself, I'm pretty sure I have never used an array in an Elm program. I've just used list for everything. And I guess that's because most of the apps or every app I've worked with, I think has never been so performance critical that I was worried about which implementation was most optimal. And so I would just stick with list until I had a reason not to. And so far I haven't had a reason not to. For those like me who have yet to use or reach for an array in Elm, what should people be considering arrays for in Elm today, if not in future? 
Is it for speedy concatenation that you mentioned, or is it for something else? The reason to use arrays today, I would say, is, is if you want to add things to the end. Yeah. If you want to operate at the end of a sequential data structure, add things to the end, retrieve the last element, stuff like that, you should probably use an array. So if you're building a queue of some kind, a first in, first out sort of queue, if it's going to have a lot of things, and you're constantly going to be picking the thing off of the end of it, that's what you want an array for? Yeah, that's where it shines yeah. at the moment, at least. Um, cool. And the idea, of course, is to make it even more general purpose, to make it more suited for other workloads as well. Well, I am sure that's something they taught me in computer science school, but I've long <laughs> since forgot it. So there you go, Robin. You've officially overtaken uh, the people with degrees. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> <laughs> Boom! <laughs> it's been a long voyage, really, from burning out to contributing a lot to Elm. And now, as of two months ago, I'm actually working for a company called Beck, which is a consultancy here in Norway who are huge supporters of Elm. And uh, they're huge supporters of Elm. They host the Oslo Elm Meetup. They are sponsored of Oslo Elm Day. And they're currently having me work on a project, which is Elm. So I, you know, I work with Elm full time. What kind of work does Beck do? Does it do client work or are they building their own internal projects? They do mostly client work. Uh, so currently I'm working at a company called NSB, uh, which I guess directly translate to Norwegian State Railways. Elm at their web pages, which allows for purchasing tickets online, stuff like that. So if you buy a train ticket in Norway, you're using a, an Elm web app. The chances are high, yeah. <laughs> That's very exciting. Yeah, it is. It's awesome is what it is. But it's strange that I would leave software development for, quote, forever, and suddenly I'm a contributor to a language that I also work with professionally eight hours a day. It's been a fun but strange turn of events. Well, this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but this I have a huge smile on my face because that, <laughs> that does make me very happy. And I think a lot of the objectives of the Elm language can be seen in your journey. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but Elm itself attempts to solve some things that make programming difficult and frustrating. And... Um, you can see how in some ways you left those difficulties and frustrations behind you planning never to come back and elm enabled you to come back without having to take on those difficulties and frustrations again i don't know if that is wildly oversimplified view of 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 what we're talking about but um it, it's a nice story anyway yeah well if it is a wildly oversimplification it's it's one i like so i did come up with a pick though Oh, you surprised me with a pick. All right, give me give me your pick. <laughs> For those who are listening, I have I have made a rule that picks are no longer mandatory, but guests are very welcome to bring things along to share with our audience. So what have you got for them? In my array work, there came a point where I told Evan that I have a stable array implementation that I would love to get merged into core because I think a lot of people would benefit from that. And he would say that, yeah, but your slice implementation is much slower than the original. And I was like, well, yeah. I can happily make certain points of the array faster if this makes it in. And I think the response from Evan is something that people should hear, really. It's a great quote. Okay. So I'm reading, point is, Thinking that contribution means merged into core is a poisonous mindset. Languages cannot work that way. Like I've said previously, many of my projects don't make the cut. Learning is progress, prototypes are progress, performance numbers are progress, discussion is progress. Doing work doesn't mean core should change. Which 
it's a great quote because there are a lot of people who that are frustrated fantastic. that people don't get stuff into Elm. And unfortunately, Evan doesn't do like most of his projects, most of his experiments aren't actually pushed to GitHub anymore. They were in the past. Mm. So you can't see how much of Evan's own work doesn't make it into Elm. Uh, but it's really nice to just hear him say it, that most of his stuff isn't good enough for Elm. And the bar is really high. And I think that's also one of the reasons why everyone likes Elm so much, because the bar for what makes it in is really, really high. The bar is really high, but the point there that he's making is that the bar for contribution is not high, as long as contribution doesn't need to mean it makes it into the final product. When you're inventing a new programming language, there is a lot of work to do and not all of it makes it into the finished product. Yeah, that's also a very nice way to put it. Well, thank you for sharing your work with us today, Robin. It was a, a wonderful story to tell and I'm very happy I got to hear it first and very <laughs> soon our, our listeners will hear it too. It's been a pleasure to be here and uh, hopefully I'll be here again. Who knows? No doubt. Well, if you continue uh, reinventing our data structures, I can't wait to hear the stories of the failed experiments that don't make it into core that you do <laughs> along the way. Thanks again for listening to Elmtown Listener. It's a pleasure to bring this podcast to you every single time. And uh, Robin, thanks for joining us in Elmtown. No problem. Thanks for having me.